I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 14th, 2020. Coming up, for today's feature, I talk with planetary scientist Dr. Carver Bierson about the past and present of Pluto, hints about its subsurface ocean, and what that and Pluto's modern-day surface features tell us about how Pluto might have formed a long time ago in a region of the solar system far, far away. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science with a report from Beth Bennett. You've been diligent about wearing your mask and social distancing. What else can you do to reduce your risk for the coronavirus? A new study from China shows a strong connection between fasting blood sugar and a poor outcome once infected. Specifically, the authors examined the association between fasting blood sugar on admission to the hospital and mortality of COVID-19 patients without previously diagnosed diabetes. The researchers looked at 605 COVID-19 patients, including 114 who died in hospital. The median age was 59 and 52% were men. 208, that's 34%, had one or more underlying conditions, although they didn't have diabetes. Almost one-third, or 29%, of patients had the highest category of fasting blood sugar when admitted. If they had this level consistently, they would be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Patients in this high-sugar group were 2.3 times more likely to die than those in the lowest group. Those in the middle group, who would be considered pre-diabetic, were 71% more likely to die than those in the lowest group. Men were 75% more likely to die than women. Now, these results are intriguing, but keep in mind a few sticking points. First, this was a retrospective study. This means that the researchers picked the data after the fact, a design that can introduce some bias. Second, they didn't analyze glycated hemoglobin, aka HbA1c, which is a long-term blood sugar indicator. Your HbA1c, which many of us have had measured during annual checkups, indicates long-term high blood sugar, as opposed to a spike induced by short-term stress. Also, they did not have sufficient data to study the effect of glucose-lowering treatments such as insulin or metformin on the outcome of patients in the study. The authors suggest several possible mechanisms for this increased mortality. These include changes in clotting, vascular function, and overproduction of inflammatory cytokines by the immune system, the so-called cytokine storm. All of these could be caused by high blood sugar. Diabetes, which is a disease characterized by high blood sugar, clearly worsens the outcome for COVID-19. However, the researchers believed that the acute high blood sugar that they focused on when they measured fasting blood sugar is a more important measure than long-term sugar in terms of predicting the prognosis of hospitalized COVID-19 patients. This study was published last week in the journal Diabetologia. Hey, look up. There is a comet in the sky called Neowise, named after the NASA spacecraft that discovered the comet. During the next few days, it is still visible in the early morning, an hour or two before sunrise. Although it can be seen with the naked eye if you have a relatively dark place and nowhere to look, a simple pair of binoculars will help. In the mornings, 
Comet Neowise is in the northeast. To find it, first find Venus, which these days is the brightest morning object in the east. Head north to find the bright star Capella, and then about the same distance down toward the horizon and a bit to the left. With a pair of binoculars, you should be able to see the comet with its distinctive tail pointing upwards. Then, starting in the next day or two, Comet Neowise will start becoming visible in the evening, an hour or two after sunset in the northwest, low on the horizon, below the Big Dipper. In the front range, you might want to get a bit east, away from the mountains that block the western sky, and up on a rise if possible. listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Pluto was discovered 90 years ago, and ever since then it has been a place of mystery, the small sentinel at the edge of the solar system. Over the most recent few decades, Pluto-like objects were discovered in that cold region beyond the orbit of Neptune, the third zone of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt. On July 14, 2015, exactly five years ago today, the New Horizons spacecraft made the first reconnaissance of Pluto, collecting data that continue to be analyzed and provide surprises of this distant world. On this fifth anniversary of the Pluto flyby, my guest is Dr. Carver Beerson, who is a planetary scientist at Arizona State University. Carver has been involved with the New Horizons mission and recently published a paper about Pluto based on data from the mission. He's here to talk about results in the paper, hints of a subsurface ocean, and what data from five years ago can tell us about how Pluto formed four and a half billion years ago. Thank you very much for being on the show today, Carver. Yeah, thank you for having me. Maybe we should just start off about why Pluto is interesting. A lot of people know it got, quote-unquote, demoted to a dwarf planet, but it still was interesting enough to study and fly a mission by it. But what is so interesting about Pluto itself? Yeah, so when we think about the the general structure of our solar system, we have the inner rocky planets, we have the asteroid belt past Mars, and the ice and gas giants in the outer solar system, and then out past that, we have this whole other group of objects in the Kuiper Belt. And Pluto's the largest of those. And it's the only one that we've been able to visit till this very last year we visited another one also with New Horizons. Great. It's the king of the Kuiper Belt. Yes. Uh, it gives us clues to the outer solar system there. Pluto was visited by a spacecraft almost five years ago called the New Horizons Mission. So can you tell us what the New Horizons Mission was and why it went to Pluto? Sure. So New Horizons launched in 2006. At the time, it was the fastest spacecraft we had launched from the Earth. 
getting past the moon in just under a half hour journey that took the Apollo astronauts three days. Yes. Wow. Um, a year later, it flew past Jupiter to gain even more speed and still took nine years to get to Pluto. It's a good so example of how big the solar system really is going that fast. Absolutely. We're really talking about a world on the edge of our solar system that's far more distant than the places that we normally are able to visit with spacecraft. Give us a very unique look at the kinds of worlds we have. And what kind of instruments did New Horizons have on it to study Pluto? So New Horizons was equipped with a variety of cameras on board so that we could get a good look at the surface geology, get a sense for the different materials going on the surface. There's a spectrometer on board as well to give us more information about the composition and also a host of instruments to study the fields and plasmas in the area and try to understand Pluto's atmosphere. The cameras are the ones of particular interest to you. Uh, those are the data that you use for your studies, is that right? Yes. And how did you get involved in New Horizons as a, a newly minted PhD student? How does someone get involved in a mission? First of all, one that's been flying for 14 years, but just getting involved in a NASA mission. So I was very lucky that right as I was starting grad school was when New Horizons was arriving at Pluto. And working with my advisor, my first project was trying to understand the shape of Pluto and figure out is Pluto spherical? Is it oblate like many of the worlds in the solar system are using this host of data that we gotten? Because we had never had a chance to even ask those questions before, try to answer them. So this gave us our up-close look at it. Like I said, New Horizons flew past Pluto five years ago, and you just had a paper out on it. So it seems like even though it was five years ago, we're still learning from those observations. Absolutely. New Horizons flew past Pluto extremely fast and gathered so much data. It took more than a year just to send all that data back to the Earth. And there's still so much that we're going through. There's such a variety of different features and terrains on Pluto and all sorts of new processes to explore and types of things to understand. Lots of data to dig into for future generations of grad students. <laughs> Absolutely. You have a recent paper that came out in Nature Geoscience, I believe. It's called Evidence for a Hot Start and Early Ocean Formation on Pluto. Now, just the title itself has surprising words there for Pluto, hot and ocean. First of all, how do we even know Pluto has an ocean? And what does that ocean look like? So... One of the most surprising discoveries, in my opinion, when New Horizons went past is that we started finding all these different lines of evidence that pointed towards Pluto having a subsurface ocean, so under this thick ice layer today. And there's roughly three lines of evidence that we see on the surface for this. We see cracks on the surface with these young extensional features, like you might see if you put a water bottle in your freezer. That water as it freezes is going to expand it could crack that water bottle open and we see fresh cracks on pluto like it's still freezing the water in its interior so these cracks are valleys essentially like what we yes. would see on earth yes okay 
So that's one line of evidence. Yep. <laughs> the second is that in some of those cracks, we can see fresh exposures of ammonia and fresh water ice near the surface. And ammonia is interesting for two reasons. One is that it's an antifreeze. So it could help this ocean stay cold and liquid under the surface. And also ammonia doesn't last that long, geologically speaking, on Pluto's surface. It gets degraded over time by high energy particles impacting Pluto's surface. So the fact that we see ammonia concentrated in these cracks in some areas looks like it was recently brought to the surface. Okay, so that's two. You said yep. there was a third? There is a third. And the third is the one that's the hardest for me to explain. But by looking at the largest features on Pluto, like the big valley of nitrogen ice, Sputnik Planitia, that's front and center in those images of Pluto. The heart of Pluto. The, yes, Pluto's heart. <laughs> We can learn about how Pluto has rearranged itself to compensate that. Hmm. And we would expect that heart to be in very different places if Pluto had a subsurface ocean or was frozen solid. So by looking at these largest features, that's also telling us about how Pluto's internal structure is able to change and rearrange itself to react to that. Okay, so several clues to interior conditions of what's going on in Pluto. When you talk about a subsurface ocean underneath a shell, what is the shell and how thick is that? So that shell that I'm talking about is composed of water ice and we don't really know how thick it is. It's very thick, like probably hundreds of miles, but we don't really know. And that's still one of these mysteries that we're trying to work out. So given that Pluto has an ocean under this thick ice shell. Ice is like the bedrock of Pluto. What are your recent results in this paper of yours? So in this work, we were asking the question, well, when did Pluto get its ocean? And how can we maybe learn about the earliest times on Pluto? So one idea that's been around in the past is that, well, if Pluto started very cold with just a mixture of rock and ice. Over time, heat produced by the radioactive decay and many elements in that rocky material could warm up that ice and begin to melt it to form an ocean. And if that happened, then as that ocean's forming, you're melting ice into water and all of Pluto's gonna compress. It's going to shrink. And then later on, when that ocean starts to refreeze, like it's probably doing today, it's going to expand again. Okay, and this is because water is that weird chemical that expands when it turns solid and contracts when it goes to liquid. Yep, and we can take advantage of that weirdness and look for signatures of that expansion and contraction on the surface. And as I said earlier, we see this evidence for recent expansion, but we don't see any evidence of early compression, even though it looks like some of the terrains that we see on Pluto are very ancient and maybe roughly the age of the solar system itself. When you say you don't see evidence for compression, first of all, we're talking compression that could be like 4 billion years ago? Yep. 
Okay, so, so old compression. <laughs> very old. And we would look for this by maybe looking for large mountain ranges that would be forced up as pieces of ice were brought together and compressed. Hmm. Here on the earth, we have lots of compressional mountain ranges, like the Himalayas would be one example that's very dramatic. We don't see evidence for those compressional features. So that's an indication against the idea that a cold start, that it started with ice and then that ice melted. Is that correct? Yes. So we started thinking about, well, what else might it be? Like, could it be that Pluto formed with an ocean or how this ocean very shortly after it was formed? In that case, Pluto would have been refreezing throughout all of solar system history. So we should see ancient extensional terrains and modern extension. Hmm. Now, one of the hard things here is that when you look at very old features on any world in the solar system, they're very eroded. They're very degraded. They've been beat up for 4 billion years. Hmm. So it can be kind of hard to tell what's going on. But when we look at these ancient features, they do appear to be extensional from the best that we can tell. Uh, you talk about erosion and getting beat up. Now, Pluto is on the far edge of the solar system. What exactly is erode, would erode and beat up old features on Pluto? Well, largely it's going to be impact craters coming in and moving material, forming new craters, throwing things around. But when we look at Pluto, we also see a host of other erosive processes going on. In that central heart of Pluto, today we see all this nitrogen ice. And that nitrogen ice is moving around. We see glaciers that are flowing. We see other trains on Pluto that have methane ice that is also being eroded. So while Pluto is very cold, it has a very active atmosphere that's still shaping the surface. If you just joined us, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and I am talking with Arizona State University scientist Dr. Carver Beerson about Pluto and how observations made by the New Horizons spacecraft are telling us about Pluto's subsurface ocean and how Pluto formed. So, Carver, then getting back to what you were saying about looking at the old extensional features and the new ones. What is it that you see and what are they telling you? So the fact that we see what at least looked to us to be ancient extension hints at this early ocean. And so we had to think about, well, how might Pluto have formed an ocean really early in solar system history, forming in such a cold part of the solar system? And the idea that we came to is that maybe it was warmed up by the heat of accretion itself, by the heat of it being formed. Essentially, as you're forming Pluto or any other world, you have a bunch of material coming in and impacting the surface. And impacts are like explosions on the surface that are going to heat up that local area. Now, if you're forming really slowly, you heat up the local area and then it has time to cool off to space. But if you heat fast, or if you form fast, you have impact on top of impact, 
warming that area over and over again without time to cool off. And in that case, you can get temperatures warm enough to start melting that ice, warm enough to be forming an ocean uh, as you're forming Pluto itself. So it heats up by the nature of all the parts of debris that are impacting and forming Pluto billions of years ago. Yes. And this is, this is what you call a hot start scenario? <laughs> it is. So, and we should keep in mind, too, that hot is a relative term here on Pluto. Right, because people are thinking, you know, Pluto's not exactly close to the sun. It's not in a warm, toasty, summery part of the solar system. <laughs> No, so surface temperatures on Pluto today are close to minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> uh, the warm temperatures that we're talking about in the early solar system are just barely warm enough to melt that water ice. So you should be thinking more lakes under the ice in Antarctica, not going swimming in the Bahamas. Still, for that distant in the solar system, that's pretty warm. I mean, Pluto is more than 30 times further from the sun than the Earth. So you know, the, it is considerably cooler out there. But I guess the warming happens from these impacts. Yeah. You know, building a planet, building a world like this is an extremely energetic process. There's a lot going on. And if it happens fast, things are going to heat up. You talk about this being more effective if it happens quickly, in that it doesn't have a chance to kind of cool down after each impact. Now, how quick is quick? So we calculate that Pluto would have to form faster than about 30,000 years to get warm enough for this ocean to form. And one of the exciting things about this is other groups working totally independently, working on other problems like why do a lot of Kuiper Belt objects have moons around them, much more than asteroids? We're trying to solve problems about how the gas giants formed have in the last 10 years or so been coming up with all these ideas to say maybe these worlds were forming very fast to explain these other features. And essentially now we're coming to the same conclusion that yes, Pluto also looks like it formed very fast, but we're coming to this conclusion from a very different direction using very different lines of evidence. Faster than 30,000 years yes. or so. That seems awfully quick to form a planet or even a dwarf planet. Is that consistent with how we think other planets have formed or does that vary due to all sorts of conditions? Well, as we were talking about earlier, Pluto is so far away from the sun that it's hard to learn about how Pluto formed in general. When we look at the inner solar system, the Earth, the asteroid belt, we know the timing of how things went because we can put those samples in our labs and we can look at isotopes of all the different minerals that we see and understand their history very precisely. And we don't have any of that for the Kuiper belt. So in some ways, we have to use these more indirect tools to get at what formation looked like in the distant reaches of our solar system. Hmm. So I think this is consistent with what other groups are seeing also from other indirect lines of evidence, but it's still gonna be a while before we fully put this picture together. The scenario that you put forward in this paper is that 
Pluto actually had a hot start rather than a cold start? Is it that you see these cracks, but not the compression that indicates it was a hot start? Is that a good way to say it? Yes. So we see this early uh, extension, these early cracks, like you were saying, and these more recent ones, both consistent with this hot start. And we don't see the kinds of features we would expect if it was compressing early on. And that creates this subsurface ocean. How thick might that ocean be? And does that depend on various aspects of these formation conditions? Yeah, how thick it is is hard for us to say because that depends on how fast is fast exactly hmm. getting more into those details and how big was the material that was coming in and impacting on the surface so for now we don't know how thick that initial ocean was uh, and maybe with more work down the road we can start to pin that down another mission to pluto how about that <laughs> Absolutely. Or one of Pluto's neighbors, right? Sure. This also indicates that maybe the other large Kuiper Belt objects also would have formed with oceans. Mm -hmm. Worlds like Eris and Makemake and Haumea, which all have probably fascinating geology on their surfaces. But for now, from the Earth, they're just points of light on the sky. But being able to look at Pluto up close gives you kind of a first in-person, air quotes, uh, example of one of these objects. You said there are other roughly Pluto-sized or at least large Kuiper Belt objects out there in the Kuiper Belt? Yes. Uh, Eris is almost the same size as Pluto. Um, and then others like Haumea and Makemake are roughly half the size of Pluto. And so it's not too much of a extrapolation to say that those objects may have not only formed like Pluto, but could that also mean that they have subsurface oceans? Whether or not they have oceans today is actually a harder question in many ways, because we don't know all the steps you need to go to, through to keep that ocean to the present day. And how Pluto managed to keep its ocean throughout the solar system is still one of these mysteries that we're working on understanding. Well, it's always good to have mysteries to keep working on, especially if, you know, for scientists, that's the bread and butter. Ask the questions and then figure out how to answer them. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for enlightening us a little about Pluto past and present and the Oceans on Pluto. Thank you very much for being on the show, Carver. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Carver Bierson, a postdoctoral scientist at Arizona State University. We discussed his recent paper titled Evidence for a Hot Start and Early Ocean Formation on Pluto. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Joel Parker, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Dwarf Planets from their album Pluto Bay. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.